Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Please visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep the special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Melissa. Hi, everybody. I'm Melissa. I'm a compulsive overeater, food addict, and 100-pounder. Fee, thank you for asking. It is a joy and a privilege to be back at LA meetings and to share experience, strength, and hope with you guys. I started my recovery in LA, so LA meetings have a special place in my heart. Um, Some numbers and things. And actually, before I start that, I want to welcome the new folks. In my experience, walking into my first meeting was the hardest thing. So you have done now the hardest thing and we welcome you with open arms. Um, I hope you find what you're looking for here. Um, Congratulations to the chip takers and the birthday folks and quite frankly, anybody who's on this meeting. Um, It's good to see you guys, all of you. Um, So some numbers and whatnot. So I've been in the rooms for 30 years. Um, I started my recovery in Los Angeles. Um, I'm a hundred pounder. Um, and I celebrated this year, 27 years of food sobriety. And I, and I, you know, take what you like, leave the rest. I like the word sobriety. To me, it's more powerful than abstinence because that's what I am. I'm sober. Anybody who puts down their drug of choice to my mind is sober. So my sobriety. Um, I'm going to be a little bit low tech here because I didn't scan these and I probably should. But anyway, this is, this was me before you guys found me. So I know the burden of of 100 pounds. I know the burden of having to eat every moment of the day. I couldn't not eat. I couldn't stop eating. I had to eat. I have to breathe and I had to eat. I'm gonna talk about what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on what it was like, because frankly, I think that anybody who's here today understands what it was like. We probably wouldn't be here today. And I, and I often say that to anybody who's reached a bottom, no words are necessary. And to anybody who hasn't, no words are perhaps sufficient. But um, I'll tell you a little bit about my background. It's not unusual around, around these rooms. Um, I, I, my first memory of compulsive eating is a story that my mom to this day still thinks is adorable. And it's both adorable And it's also a foreshadowing of things to come. I was four years old. My mom had baked a something. And I remember pulling a chair up to the counter and like gouging out the center of this thing she made. And I remember thinking, nobody's gonna know that that I did this. This is so slick. Well, I'm four years old. It was the work of a four-year-old. I'm the only one home besides my mom. Of course it's me. So she asked me, do you know what happened to the, whatever it was? And I said to her, Maybe the mousies did it because already at four, I knew I had to lie. Already at four, it started. I couldn't tell the truth about what I was doing. I could never tell the truth about what I was doing. And until I was delivered to these rooms, I didn't think I would ever, ever tell the truth about what I was doing because I didn't think anybody else did it. Until I was delivered to my first meeting, I didn't understand that there were other people like me and it never occurred to me. 
So I have a I have a, an ugly childhood history. There was a lot of um, physical abuse and emotional abuse and just nonsense and chaos going on in my house. I don't blame my parents for this thing that I have. I just have this thing. And I've heard people talk over the years about hating that they have it. They hate that they have it. And I offer a different way of looking at it, you guys. I don't hate that I have it. This thing saved me at a time when there was nothing and no one. There was nobody when I was growing up. I needed something. It is a miracle that I didn't find drugs and alcohol. Well, I didn't have to because I had this food thing. And when it worked, it worked. I've never been drunk and I've never done drugs, thank God, because I'm afraid of those things. Thank God, or I'd be in those rooms too. But when this thing worked, it worked. So when chaos was going on in my house, when there was yelling and screaming and abuse, um, I ate. And thank God I ate because I wasn't equipped at the time to deal with what was going on in that house. I needed something to coat the nerves, take the edge off. I needed something to help me. I needed something. And this was the thing. And you know, I started out eating a little bit extra. And as time went on, it's a progressive illness. And the amounts of food that I could consume are not unusual in these rooms, but are unusual outside of these rooms. I couldn't stop eating. I remember so well, and I hope I never forget it. I remember my little studio apartment, I always talk about this, in Westwood on Rochester Avenue by the Federal Building. I remember drawing the drapes, having one or two things to wear, not answering the phone. Because if a friend wanted to see me, screw that. I don't want to see you. I am with my food. Do not take me away from my food. Just don't do it. And I remember binging my brains out, just binging my brains out and hating that I couldn't stop and being compelled to eat more and more and more and more until the food was up to here. I couldn't stop eating. I have a history of dieting. My diets typically lasted for two weeks and then I could no longer tolerate it. Well, of course, you've taken away my coping mechanism. You've thrown me out in the middle of the ocean. There's only so long I can do that. Um, and so I had to eat. My, my longest diet ever was a doctor supervised, which basically meant I went to his office to get the protein powder. That was the supervised. And I was on a diet for nine months because I needed to lose weight and get a boyfriend back. Because don't you know that if he saw pictures, in those days we didn't have cell phones, guys. This is when you took pictures and went to the, the one hour photo to get them developed. This is, yeah, it's a while ago. Um, and I would have proof that I had lost this weight and he would realize a terrible mistake he made and he would come running back. Well, I sent the pictures and he asked me, are you seeing anybody? And I said, no. My plan is going so well. And then I said, are you? And he said, yes. That's not how the plan is supposed to go. Um, and I remember binging my brains out because I had no other way to do it. I just had no other way. So I was delivered. I don't even say I went to my first meeting in Santa Monica. I will say I was delivered to my first meeting in Santa Monica um, because I had a friend at the time who had a relative in O.A. Howe. Take what you like, leave the rest, by the way, my little, my, I'm just gonna say that up front. 
and I and I was delivered to this meeting. And it was in a basement of a church. And there was a podium and a microphone and about 30 or 40 people in the audience. And the woman at the microphone said that she ate out of the trash. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Not only did she say it, she wasn't ashamed or embarrassed to say it. She just said it. And people in the audience were nodding. And here was proof for the first time in my life that I wasn't the only one. I couldn't believe it and it changed my life forever. Now, I couldn't stick with that program because I didn't want somebody to tell me what to eat. That just didn't work for me. So I found my way into regular um, OA. Um, singleness of purpose meeting, if anybody remembers that in Westchester many, many years ago. And I went to a meeting a week and I dieted and that's all I did. I think I may have even had a sponsor. I know I didn't call her. Um, and that I did that for about nine months and I lost weight. I think I even spoke. If anybody heard me, I'm sorry. Um, and nine months I did that. And I thought, what's the big deal? This is so simple. You just go to a meeting a week. You have a sponsor. You don't call them, yada, yada. And then I was at Gelson's in Century City getting my usual sober lunch. And this particular time I added something to it some pastry item I added to it. I remember eating it and thinking, eh, what's the big deal? I'm fine. And then I wasn't fine. And then I, I was, you know, it's progressive. So the bottom keeps getting lower. What is that saying? There's a bottom below the bottom, you know. And every morning I would get up and say, I'm going to get back on track. I'm going to, I'm going to get this thing back. And every morning by 10 o'clock, I, I, it just wasn't happening. And then there was a week that went by where I realized, oh, wait, I have this thing back. And that was 27 years ago. Um, I want to talk about what some of the things I've learned in these rooms that save my life every single, every single day. Um, and I, I'd already talked before about how I don't hate that I have it. I can't hate something that saved me. And then it backfired on me. And then it led me to God. So I can't hate it. I don't, I don't hate it any more than I hate my height. I'm 5'11". I don't hate it or love it. It just sort of is a thing. It's just sort of something that I have. Um, and I recognize that it saved me at a time when there was nothing. Um, I, I am... And I'm going to jump around a little bit, so bear with me, okay, guys? Bear with me just a little bit. I am, well, when you guys found me, I was agoraphobic, couldn't hold a job, dropped out of school. I laughed because I was agoraphobic, except if I had to go get my binge foods, then suddenly I could, like, get it together and go get them. And then I was agoraphobic again, whatever. But I couldn't hold a job, and I had dropped out of school, and I was going nowhere, and I was doing nothing but eating all day and hiding and eating and hiding and eating and hiding. Um. And so I say that to contrast to today. Today, I've been at my job for over 10 years. I'm a, I'm a CPA and a, a corporate controller, which is a really funny title for folks who are living a spiritual life because my card says controller and I can't control, excuse my French, I can't control shit. Um, and so I say that one, because it reminds me how far I've come to tell other people that there is hope if you have dreams, 
they can be realized here. And two, because I love formulas and mathy things. So here is the formula for recovery and it works 100% of the time, every single day, 365 days a year. And here it is. It is always my footwork, regardless of how I feel about it. And I'll get to that in a minute. Plus God's incredible, incredible grace equals miracles, recovery, and healing. So my footwork. Um, nowhere in our literature, the big book, I have looked. Does it say only do these things when you feel like doing them? It doesn't say that. It says we do these things. So it means that I need to show up for my recovery. I need to meet my loving higher power who I choose to call God. I need to meet him every day. I can't just sit back and pray to God and sit around and wait for him to do some things. I have to be invested in this thing. And this is where I talk about willingness and I always say, take what you like, leave the rest. I really don't give a damn about willingness. It's lovely when I have it. It's not a prerequisite for my action. What I have is an action plan, not a willingness plan. If I wait for the willingness, I will never leave the house. I will stay in bed all day and I will stuff my face. That is what I'm willing to do. Willingness in my experience is me being five years old and I don't wanna pick up my toys. I don't wanna do it. Well, too bad, I have to do it. I have to do things on a daily basis because if I don't, I will die. I am an addict, you guys. And to me, an addict is an addict is an addict. I use food, somebody else uses heroin. It's, I'm, we're all wired the same, which is why I can read the big book and it makes sense to me. An addict is an addict is an addict. Um, if I don't do these things, I will pick up. If I pick up, I am gone and I will lose everything and everyone dear to me, including myself, because I will slip away from me. And I'll tell you why, because the only thing that will matter in my life is the food, how to get it, how to, how to, if, if you've got some of it and I want it, I'm going to steal it from you. If you have money and I need it, I'm going to steal it from you. I'm going to lie to you. I'm going to take more than my share and everything in yeah, the world will be about the food, everything, because I'm an addict and it's what I do. I am sane today because of program, action, God, you guys, meetings, all the things I do on a daily basis, sharing experience, strength, and hope. If I stop doing those things, I will not be sober today. And then I will be the person I was 30 plus years ago. I am not cured. I cannot be a pickle today and a cucumber tomorrow. It's never going to happen. I have to do these things. That's my part. The results are never mine. The results aren't mine. That's God's business. Sometimes things go the way I want them to, and sometimes they don't, just like everybody else on the planet, right? So here's a wonderful little baseball analogy that sums it up for me. I'm not a, I always say this, I'm not really a sports person, but I certainly know enough to share this. So the pitcher walks up to the mound on the day of the game and he throws his pitch. Every single thing to the point where the ball leaves his hand is his business. All the practicing, going to the game that day, walking up to the mound, throwing the pitch, it's all his business. From the moment the ball leaves his hand, it is no longer his business. Maybe some wind comes and knocks it out of alignment. Maybe, maybe somebody gets a home run, who knows what happens. 
I am responsible for throwing the pitch every single day, even and especially when I don't want to. And there are days I don't want to do this. This takes so much time. This takes so much effort. Don't you know I want to go watch Netflix or something? But I have to do this. I have to do this because if I don't, I will die. If I have to do this because if I don't, I will pick up and food will be my master. One more time, I'm not cured. Don't let the packaging fool you. Don't yet let the years fool you. I'm not cured. I have to do this thing every single day. So it is a program of discipline. It's a program of action. Willingness is great. It is not a prerequisite for my, for my action. It's not. Sometimes the willingness follows. Okay, that's awesome. And sometimes it doesn't. But guess what? I've done the thing. I can check it off the list. I am meeting God in the middle so he can help me. Um, the other thing I hear folks talk about a lot is the idea, and I know that it's, it's certainly true, it's a foundation of our recovery, that our, our recovery is emotional, physical, and spiritual. Absolutely. And people talk of it as a three-legged stool, which to me implies that each of those is equally weighted. My experience is a little different. My experience is that it's really more of a pyramid. And the base of the pyramid has to be the maintenance of my spiritual condition. I believe that I don't have to be connected or have faith or trust my loving higher power, my God. I don't have to have any of those things. The only thing I have to do to maintain my spiritual condition is to seek my loving higher power. That's it. Sometimes I seek, I'm not particularly connected. I don't particularly believe. And sometimes I seek and I feel like I'm at one with God. It doesn't matter. The seeking to me is step three and step two. That is, that is my loving higher power. That is how I connect. And again, I will say this a lot, even and especially when I don't want to. You know, I don't want to sit and be still. I don't want to pray. I don't want to meditate and be still. I want to go distract and watch TV or something. Well, my program doesn't work like that. So I have to do, I have to do those things. So that's the base, the maintenance of my spiritual condition. The middle is the emotional stuff. I have been blessed with incredible outside help that continues to this day. So I can continue to heal from what it is I come from. Um, it is step work. It is journaling. It is talking to people in program about what's really going on. Every day I have a choice. I can save my ass or I can save my face. I'm a lot better off saving my ass, which means I tell the truth, which means that when there's stuff going on, I find a trusted friend, a dear friend, and I say, this is what's going on. And I can always preface it with, I'm really embarrassed about this. I really don't want to talk about this. Whatever it is I have to do to get the courage to speak it, I need to speak it because that is how God helps me. When God shines that light on the dark places in my soul, the dark places in my mind, that is where I get the relief. That is where I get the help. The top of the pyramid is the physical stuff. I have a food plan. I commit it every day to my sponsor who I love, who has put up with this for 27 years and has heard my food every single day for 27 years. I love her. Um, but I have a food plan. I stick to it. If it changes, I tell her. I exercise. I do those things. But the results are not mine. I am 
55 years old today. Things aren't where they used to be. Oh, well, they're just not. That's not my business. I can't control it. I'm not going to go under the knife to change it. It is what it is. My job today is to stick to that food plan with the help of my loving higher power and all of you guys. But the results are not the same. As my sponsor's husband used to say, the furniture's moved around a little bit. Okay, it is what it is. Um, so that to me is the pyramid, how the emotional, physical, and spiritual life plays out. Um, this is a life or death program for me. This is not casual. This isn't a little problem with food. This is a problem with my soul. This is a problem with my thinking. This is a problem with my whole being. This isn't just some little problem that I can throw a diet at. I'll tell you why diets don't work for somebody like me. My question has never been and never will be, what do I eat? That's never been my question. Everybody in this room is good at math. We can count to 1,200 or 1,500 or 2,000 or whatever it is our magic number is. We're all really good at math. I don't need somebody to tell me what to eat. Here was my question my entire life, and I didn't understand it till I came in here. I need help not eating. That's my question. How do I not eat? How do I not eat? You can give me any diet plan in the world. It will work for a period of time until I can no longer tolerate it. And then I'm gonna go make up for all the time that I lost on this diet. Because without a program, a God, you guys, tools, service, I'm eating. And when I'm eating, I'm dying very, very, very slowly. I actually had a period about 20 years ago of anorexia in these rooms. And if you're thinking it's a great way to lose weight, I'm gonna, I'm gonna warn you, it's very frightening. My experience with anorexia is that it is not patient. Compulsive eating is patient. It'll wait to kill you. Anorexia is really acute and wants to do it rather quickly. And thank God for a therapist who's in these rooms, who's an eating disorder specialist who called me on it. And she called me on it and I told the truth. So I never say I'm not bulimic. I only ever add yet to the end of those sentences. I've never put my, my fingers down my throat yet. I've never been an exercise bulimic yet because I didn't think I'd be anorexic and I was. So I am aware that this, this illness, this disorder that I have can morph um, a thousand different ways. Um, I recognize that my gifts, the blessings in my life are God's gifts to me. The challenges in my life are also God's gifts to me. That means there's something I'm going to learn. I don't like them. I don't, even to this day, I'm not a big fan of feeling, but I know that I have to. I don't like the hard times. I don't like the bad feelings, grief and sadness and frustration and anger, all those, I'm going to call them bad feelings. I want to live in the good, happy feelings all the time. Well, that's not how life goes, you guys. And in 27 years, there has been life. I have been fired from jobs. I have been hired. I have had relationships end. I've been in my current relationship with my guy for almost 22 years. There have been ups and downs of living. It says on page 450, I'm not a big, I love the big book. I can never quote pages, but I can tell you if you've got the fourth edition, please read the end of 450 where it talks about how my sobriety, 
my recovery must live a life independent of what's going on in the world around me. It cannot react to, think, to things going on in the world or things going on in my life or things going on with people that I love. It can't. It's a separate, unique entity. It sees all these things and it watches all these things, but it can't, it, it doesn't react. I can't let my recovery ebb and flow based on the external circumstances. So it's a life or death program. If I pick up, I will eat. If I eat, I will be the person I was when you guys found me and I will be gone and I will lose everything. Everything will be gone, every single thing and I'll be gone. When you guys found me, I was suicidally desperate. I didn't realize the gift of that. I hope I never forget how it feels because it is fuel for my right action every single day. I do these things on a daily basis because if I don't, I'll die. It's very simple. I am like a diabetic who needs insulin. I, I One of my dear friends is diabetic. She doesn't sit around and go, you know, I really don't feel like doing the injection right now. She does it because she has to do it whether or not she wants to do it because her life depends on it. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about relapse. I have come to learn in these rooms that relapse is really not, this is gonna sound strange, so bear with me. Relapse is really not something I need to be concerned about. It's not my primary fear, but I'll tell you what is. Prelapse is what I need to be concerned about. Prelapse is every way that I fray away the edges of my program. So how does it look? Here's how it looks. Um, I don't feel like going to my meeting today. Oh, I'll call that person later in the week. You know, I haven't had X food in a while. I wonder if I could have that today. It should be fine. I'm just going to have a little bit. It's all the ways that it frays. I have to constantly be looking out for prelapse when I don't feel like going to a meeting. Well, that's really nice. It doesn't say anywhere again that I go to meetings only when I feel like it. It says I go to meetings. Um, I need to be looking for it all the time because my experience is I prelapse sometimes. I do. But there's a, there's a range where that's going to be okay. And then there's a line that gets crossed. And hearing people who have relapsed and remembering my own relapse, the relapse didn't start the day I put that thing in my mouth at Gelson's. It started weeks or months before that. So what am I not doing today that I used to do? Maybe I used to read the big book and today ah, I don't really have time. I'm not doing that. Or, you know, I used to read for today. Excuse me. And maybe I'm not doing that today. Think about what's fraying at the edges. Be aware of it and go do the thing. Because that to me, that is how relapse starts. I'm going to talk about the first step a little bit. So no disrespect meant to our founders at all, but the first step, we admitted we were powerless over food and our lives had become unmanageable. The word unmanageable, I know what they're saying. I know what they're getting at, but I don't, the word isn't powerful enough for me. Unmanageable just means I'll eat. I'll just eat through that. I'll try and manage that. I'll try and control that. So I changed the word and obviously take what you like and leave the rest, but I changed the word. We admitted we were powerless over food and our lives had become unbearable. Unbearable is why I came. Unbearable is why I stay. Unbearable is why I do these things on a daily basis that I would never do unless I was desperate. 
I am desperate. I remain desperate. My life remains unbearable if I don't do these things every single day. This um, is a minute warning. Ten minutes. Thank you. Nine minutes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, 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 my food plan today, I'll talk about it really briefly. Um, and I recognize this doesn't work for everybody. I eat like a zoo animal. I eat the same sort of thing at the same time every day. It works for me. When I binged, I binged on the same things also. Um, that works for me. Uh, I know it doesn't work for everybody, but, but that, is, that is sort of, if I were to boil my food plan down, it would be that I eat like a zoo animal. Um, you know, I wanna, I wanna, in the last few minutes, I wanna tell you guys, there's still hard days. Life has its ups and downs for me like everybody else. But the trick is I stay here. The trick is I talk about the hard times and the joyous times. The trick is I listen to you when you talk. If for those newcomers, for people who are struggling, please don't leave. That is the trick. You know, I've heard people say, I'm just another bozo on the bus. I'm a bozo on the bus who's been on the bus for a while. I'm not gonna get off the bus because I know what happens if I get off the bus. I have to stay with my people. I have to stay close to my program. There is hope here. I, I, I think of God as literally plucking me from the ashes. You guys, when I say I shouldn't be here, I mean, I shouldn't be here. I mean, had I gone on for much longer, I would have ended my life at my own hand. It was no longer the weight on my body that was the worst part of this. It was the weight on my heart and my soul. I couldn't stop eating. And if I was stopping for a moment, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was a prisoner of food. It was my every thought. It was my every action. I did ugly things when I was compulsively eating. I stole from my parents who had not very much money. I stole from an employer because the petty cash was in my drawer and I thought it's in my drawer, it must be my money. This is the thinking that makes perfect sense when I am in the throes of my eating disorder. And if I doubt for a second that there's a higher power, all I have to do is think of my eating disorder. It had me by the scruff of the neck and was carrying me around. I need something, someone, some entity bigger than that to help me recover on a daily basis. That is God, that is you guys, that is these rooms. There is a way out. I've heard it said that we don't open up the gates of heaven and let you in. That's not what we do. We open up the gates of hell and we let you out. Come with us, you guys. If you're new, they say go to six meetings. They're all a little bit different. You will hear your story or parts of your story. There is nothing you could that you could say to us that we haven't heard of, done, thought of, imagined. There's nothing new under the sun. I was talking to a dear friend, a fellow in program before the meeting today. In these rooms, I have no shame about what I did with food. Absolutely not. If something I did with food could help another person, then all the better. Outside of these rooms, I have to be honest and say I have a bit of a different experience. I don't share this very freely because I recognize that there is a mindset outside of these rooms that still says you're weak, you're lazy, why can't you just why can't you just eat half? Why do you have to eat so much? You know why I have to eat so much? Because I have to eat so much. That's why. That's why I have to. 
because I'm a compulsive overeater and that's what I do. And please don't tell me that I'm only eating because I'm hungry. That is like telling an alcoholic you're only drinking because you're thirsty. That is not why I eat. I don't even know when I'm hungry or full today. I stop eating when my measured weight and measured meals end. That's how I know. I still don't know. So for anybody who's struggling, you guys, I can't say it enough. If this could happen for me, I promise you, could happen for anybody, anybody on this meeting, anybody outside of these rooms, a loving higher power is available to all of us, all of us, as soon as we truly take step one and surrender, as soon as we're really done, as soon as we're done compulsively eating, even when we're not done. Because if I've just binged, I'm done compulsively eating. I'm never doing this again for about five minutes. And then I'm right back at it. I need to be done even when I'm not done. Please don't leave, you guys. Please stay here. Listen to people. You're going to hear your story. There is hope here. There is help here. This program has given me a life beyond my wildest dreams. And quite frankly, I didn't even have dreams before I came here. I only dreamed to eat. That was my dream. So I'll leave it with that. Fee, thank you again. It is such a gift and a blessing to see some of some of my old friends in LA, I wish you guys peace and blessings. Thank you. Wow. Thanks so much for that amazing, powerful lead, Melissa. Um, it looks like we have time for a question or two. Uh, please, oh, it looks like Michael S has his hand raised. Go ahead, Michael, and ask your question. Hey, Melissa. Oh my gosh, amazing. So great to hear you. Um, I would love to hear more about your thoughts on prelapse. I just loved hearing you talk about it. I wonder if oh. there's anything you want to elaborate on. Yes, I do. And actually, thank you for asking that question. The Silicon Valley Intergroup is going to be putting on a workshop June 12th from 10 to 12 noon on prelapse. More information coming on that. So prelapse is, it's where I start, it's where I stop doing things because I don't want to do them. I don't feel like exercising. I don't feel like emailing my food. It usually starts with, I don't feel like, or I'm tired. This one time, it won't matter. It's all those seemingly small ways that start to fray the edges of my program. And my experience is that relapse typically starts with prelapse. And if I can find it back there in the prelapse stage, then good. That means I don't have to relapse today. I can take care of it. If there's something that I typically do, and for the last week I realize I haven't done that, please go do it. If it benefits you, if it benefits your recovery, if it's something that you used to do that was part of your spiritual routine, please do it. Does that, does that help, honey? Definitely. Okay, cool. Okay, great. It looks like we have time for one more question. Anybody would like to raise their hand in the reaction section? at the bottom. Uh, great, Ben, go right ahead. Yeah, hi, um, Melissa, I'm just curious. Um, is there a certain format that you write your action plan out in or do you just kind of make it like a free form? I'm just curious about. To be honest with you, I do this, just like I eat like a zoo animal, I do the same actions most every day. So I don't write it out anymore. Um, I can tell you that it has evolved over the years. What used to keep me sober with my food five, 10, 20 years ago wouldn't be enough today. I can tell you that the list is longer. Um, so 
I would say start with whatever whatever your spiritual routine looks like. If it helps you to literally write it down, then write it down. And for me, it, it involves these days meditation, it involves exercise. But since I do it basically the same thing every day, I don't write it down. Does that help? Yes, thank you. You're welcome. Great, thanks. That's all the time we have for questions. And thanks again. And also, um, Melissa, we have requests if you wouldn't mind sharing your contact info in the sure. chat, that would be awesome. And um, again, uh, uh, we'll uh, send it back to Mari, our secretary. Thanks. It is now time for our seventh tradition. The LA Intergroup requests that you continue to contribute